May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Jesus said to them, Give to the emperor the things that are the emperor's, and to God the things that are God's. The translation I grew up with was, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Today, I want to ask, what things are Caesar's? And I want to apply this to our current situation. But I need to start by saying how different our situation is from what Jesus and the Jewish people were suffering. They did not vote for Caesar. They were under military oppression. Moreover, we've become used to the whole idea of a nation state, but that idea was in fact new in the world after the Peace of Westphalia in 1648. So let me start with the situation of being under Roman imperial domination in the first century. The Pharisees exploit this situation by laying a trap for Jesus. They start with honeyed words. We know you are true. NRSV translates sincere and NIV a man of integrity. But it's the same word at the end of the sentence and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Truth in Greek is first a feature of persons where the outside matches the inside. The Pharisees go on to explain this truthfulness. They say, for you do not regard people with partiality. And literally, the Greek says, for you do not regard a person's face. In Greek, the prosopon. This word prosopon is full of riches. In our Exodus passage today, God grants that the divine goodness passes before Moses, but hides Moses so that he does not see God's face in the Septuagint, God's prosopon, because that would kill him. By contrast, Paul tells us, and this is the new covenant, that God has made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. The prosopon is the outward manifestation. In ancient Greece, it is the word for the masks that actors always wore on stage. So the glory is in God's outward activity, God's shining. And Moses cannot see the full shining 
and live. But we can see in our hearts the glory of God in the loving face of Jesus. With mere humans, however, there's a gap, a failure of truth between who we are inside and who we are in our presentation to the world. And the Pharisees start by flattering Jesus, saying that he does not regard the face, meaning that he does not care about the outer presentation rather than the true person inside. He does not care about the outward show and favor the rich man who is nicely dressed and given the best seat in the synagogue. Jesus, they are implying, is not the kind of person who would say something just in order to suck up to imperial power. There is a rich irony here. Jesus is indeed not someone who is impressed by the outward show. He sees into our hearts. And this means he sees into their hearts. He knows what the Pharisees and Herodians are doing. He knows the trap they've laid for him. They are exactly not being true. They ask him whether it's right to pay taxes to Caesar. Suppose he says yes. Then he's no longer a potential messiah in the way it was understood, a savior of the people from their oppression by the Romans. Suppose he says no. Then he's a troublemaker and one properly handed over to the Romans for punishment, probably capital punishment. These are the two horns of the dilemma. And Jesus passes neatly between them. This is why this is why they're amazed. And they have to leave with their tails between their legs. Yes, Jesus says, give to Caesar what has his stamp on it. In America, you don't have kings. But in Britain, the coins have the Queen's picture on them. And this is because they are issued on her authority. But no, Caesar is not God. Even though in the imperial cult, he claims to be a God. And even though this divine claim too is represented on some of his coins. There are some obligations we have even to unjust rulers, even to emperors who have extended the, their power over our people by force of arms. Paul talks about this in Romans. Rulers are part of God's provision for our present human condition and we need to respect their role. But, in my view, this does not extend 
to their anti-God commands, if there are some. Then, our obligation is to civil disobedience. There are many hard cases here, and this is not my topic for today. What I want to ask is whether there is a positive correlate to Jesus' words here. Is there a proper love for our country? A proper patriotism? in addition to the obligation to pay taxes. I'm writing this on the eve of an election, which seems to me incredibly important. I've been phoning swing states for seven weeks and have spoken to many Trump supporters and Biden supporters and many people who are just fed up with the whole thing and hang up on me. This has not been easy. I have been told to go to hell. But I have also been told that I was the first person who had spoken to them on a political call with courtesy and respect. This shows how rude and dismissive we have become in our political discourse with each other. When I was working in Washington on congressional staff years ago, we had a group of staff that met together from both House and Senate and from both Democratic and Republican parties. Even then, this was unusual. It was made possible, I think, because we were all Christians and we had a shared greater loyalty. We were able to talk about policy together and pray together. There is now a group of new congressmen and congresswomen attempting this kind of, of crossing the divide. And there are groups attempting this with ordinary citizens. For example, at braverangels.org co-founded by the Bishop of Newark. But can a Christian properly love her or his country? Or is that inevitably a kind of idolatry? Paul Smith stressed last week that an idol is made by human hands. This is true also when we make Caesar into a god. It is we who do this. Reinhold Niebuhr talks about patriotism slewing internationalism. Should we not embrace the competing ideal of cosmopolitanism, where we are citizens not of some limited region of the earth, but of the whole cosmos, In the church, we have a similar ideal, a universal or Catholic church, where Catholic means literally over the whole. It has been a profound experience for me to go to Zambia and to Jamaica and to India 
and worship in Anglican services following the Book of Common Prayer. The Anglican Communion is not the same as the Universal Church, to be sure, but it is an approach towards the picture we have in Revelation. I quote, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language. In the face of this universality, what place is there in a Christian heart for love of one's own country? I want to return to something I spoke about in an earlier sermon, what I call the principle of providential proximity. This is the principle that God puts us next to the people that God wants us to help, in the way that God put the Good Samaritan next to the wounded traveler by the side of the road. The Latin for neighbor is proximus. The proximity does not have to be physical contiguity, though it was for the Good Samaritan. If my son goes to Zambia, to a village in the bush, that village can become my village to support, even though there may be villages just next door with the same needs. We have to discern whom God is putting us next to. But this idea helps with what would otherwise be the bottomless pit of need in the world facing our own limited resources. The idea is that God first puts us in community and then sends us out beyond it. It is because God is the God of the whole world that when we follow God's leading within community, we then have to follow God's leading beyond it. But the beyond does not negate the bonds that we feel within the community where God has placed us. Aristotle says that humans are political animals. Genesis does not start out this way because it begins not with a city, a polis in Greek, but in a garden with a single couple. It does not tell us what plans God would have revealed if the couple had stayed faithful and multiplied into a numerous and faithful people. Moreover, for most of human history, we were hunters and gatherers with no city at all, although very probably with tribal structures of organization. However, we get guidance on this matter from the end of the story. The end is not a garden, but a city the new Jerusalem, and this city has a king. 
The citizens of this new city are drawn from every nation, tribe, people, and language. But the text does, does not say that these new citizens abandon their old nations and tribes and peoples and languages. Rather, I quote, the nations in the plural, the nations will walk by the light of the glory of the Lord and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. The picture is that each nation, and I suppose each tribe and people and language, has its own glories, which it will bring into the new city. So here is something to add to the principle of providential proximity. We are put next to fellow citizens. Though I think sometimes God asks us to move from one group of fellow citizens to another. And each group has its own gifts to bring to the heavenly Jerusalem from their different forms of political organization. The model Jesus gives us here lies in his relation not to Caesar, but first to his own people and then beyond them to the Gentiles. In the next chapter in Matthew, Jesus shows his love for his own people in his lament over Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wing, but you were not willing. But in the story of the Canaanite woman in Matthew 15, six chapters before, Jesus moves beyond the picture that he sent only to his own people. He moves beyond the zero-sum picture of God's blessing. It is possible, the Canaanite woman says, in reply to Jesus' initial refusal to heal her daughter, for the food that was for the family also to feed the dogs under the table. The food can feed both. This is not like the blessing of Isaac, that was given to Jacob and therefore taken away from Esau. Jesus commends her faith and heals her daughter, and this is the first deliberate movement of the blessing beyond his own people. In our second reading for the day, Paul is writing to the Thessalonians and commending them for being a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. In particular, they'd been extremely generous in his project of getting funds to those who were starving in Jerusalem. He says about the Macedonian churches in 2 Corinthians, 
that out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and extreme poverty welled up in a rich generosity. This is a reverse flow. God blessing Jews through Gentiles. But the principle is the same. Out of their security within their own community, even in the face of persecution, they reach out to those outside. So, there is a proper local love, but it does not exhaust our loves. Here are three quick examples of what loving one's country might be like when that country is England. I might love a national musical style, perhaps 17th century motets by Gibbons or Tompkins, with their extraordinary mix of expressiveness and intricacy. Or I might love a piece of land, perhaps the downs above the village where I grew up and where I know the names of all the plants that grow there. Or when my country wins an unexpected victory in the World Cup, I might watch in my local pub and share in the jubilation all around me. As a new American, I can have similar loves, though perhaps not in the same way in my bones. I can love jazz from New Orleans and Greenwich Village. And when America is attacked on 9-11, I can feel a great surge of solidarity. I don't know if you know what it's like to love America with outside eyes. I think there are strongly valuable things about this country. And I say this as an immigrant who is also a citizen. But the four things I'm going to mention are aspirations and not facts on the ground. There are also strongly valuable things about Britain. And there are, to be sure, irritating and distressing things about both countries. Sometimes it can feel as though one belongs nowhere, or in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. But here are four things about America that seem to me valuable and distinctive as national aspirations. I will call them the aspirations to freedom, to hospitality, to mobility, and to courtesy. The country aspires to a degree of freedom from bureaucratic control that is productive of excellent and original work. The country aspires to be hospitable to aliens and strangers, as expressed in the inscription on the Statue of Liberty, and aspires to a genuine integration into a hybrid, not an assimilated culture that is enriched by its newcomers. 
The country aspires to be open to overturning hierarchy and not to be bound by traditional class distinctions. For example, the election of Barack Obama could probably not have happened in 2008 in Britain or elsewhere in Europe. And finally, the country aspires to a friendly and open manner in dealing with people we do not know. I remember when I got here wondering why people were inviting me to lunch in their homes after barely meeting me. So four aspirations. But then there are what I call the practical contradictions. In terms of freedom from bureaucracy, how many of you know what I mean by the Department of Motor Vehicles on State Street, which I can still not pass by in the car without a shudder after many horrible hours inside. Did America manifest hospitality to the Irish or the Chinese, let alone Africans who came as slaves? And how open is America to mobility, given the institutional patterns of segregated lending for mortgages and unequal educational funding? Finally, to what extent do we manifest courtesy to those who disagree with us politically in these polarized times? And to what extent was my lunch invitation to people's homes a result of my privilege in class and race? African-Americans crossing the street on the crosswalk report hearing the click, click, click of car doors being locked against them. All this is why I talk about aspirations rather than facts on the ground. But in answer to the question, is there a proper love of our country? I say yes. We have been put by providence next to our fellow citizens and we should love them and serve them. When my father was 19 years old, he signed up for the army on the eve of the Second World War. He knew that this might mean that he had to die for his country. And in fact, he very nearly did. He was captured by the Japanese at Singapore and spent the war working on the Burma Siam Railroad under conditions of near starvation and torture. He had been a pacifist before the war, but he came to think that he could not justify staying behind when others were protecting Britain and its values at the cost of their lives. There is here, I think, a noble patriotism. But there is a major proviso. Caesar is not God. We can revise the question 
and ask, what do we owe to our country, rather than what do we owe to Caesar? And Jesus' warning against idolatry still applies. It is fatally easy to think that God is especially the God of our own country and cares only in a secondary way for all the rest. But my point has been that because it is God who puts us in countries and God is the God of the world, we have to follow the model of Jesus. We have to follow God's leading beyond our countries to those other people God has put us next to in the rest of the world. Finally, what do we owe to our country? We owe to be good citizens. Especially now, we owe to vote. Please vote. But more generally, we owe to discern what are those values that are distinctive about our country and that we can offer as our gifts to bring to the heavenly Jerusalem. And then, when we've discerned them, we need to work for them without practical contradiction in our body politic. And I want to end with one more thing. After the first presidential debate, I was deeply demoralized about our life together as a country. But I had this thought. The church, and in particular this church, can be a place of God's peace. We may not agree with each other or all vote the same way, but we can love each other. We can worship and pray together and respect that we are joining in the common enterprise of trying to be obedient to God's calling on each of our lives as citizens. In line with this, we're going to have an evening prayer on Wednesday, November the 4th, focused on reconciliation. And I'm going to suggest that sometime after the election, perhaps on Wednesday, November the 11th, those of us who want to can gather on Zoom and listen to each other as we decompress. We can use braverangels.com as our model. I pray that in all this, we can be true, matching our outside to our inside. And I pray that we can make manifest in our dealing with each other that we have seen in our hearts the glory of God 
in the loving face of Jesus Christ. And I think if we do this, we are in fact loving our country and in a way that honors God as God. Amen. <laughs>